Well, I think we all kind of hoped that by some magical turn of a page of a calendar that 2021 would be a better year than 2020. But honestly, uh, the police shootings continue. The protests continue in Wake County, in our county. A four-year-old girl this past week was shot by a drive-by shooter as she slept on a mattress in her home near the front door. Elsewhere in our state, in our state, an eight-month-old child was shot inside her home while in her mother's arms. Mercifully, both of those survived, but a seven-year-old boy in Hickory this past week was not so fortunate. He was shot and killed in the back seat of his mother's car. Police called it random. And while things are presently better here, the pandemic continues around the world. It's raging in places like India, I'm sure you've seen. We have a North Wake sister who's living there. She's in lockdown again, as are the people that she's there to love and serve. Their hospitals are overrun with patients and people are dying outside in the sidewalks. You know, it, it can start to feel after a while kind of hopeless. Um, like maybe we've been forgotten. Or maybe that we found ourselves on the losing side, at least for a season. And I think that's what it must have felt like for Daniel and his three friends and the rest of his people who were taken captive by the nation of Babylon, as we saw last week. In Daniel chapter 1, this is what we saw. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And so the story now begins to revolve around four young men, as we saw as young as 14, middle schoolers perhaps, taken captive by a foreign power and ripped away from family and friends, forced to study foreign culture, foreign gods, foreign religions. For three years, they were enrolled at Babylon High. Um, but, as we saw last week, they excelled in those studies, showing themselves and their God to be superior to those of their captors. In the first of a series, in the early part of the book of Dan Daniel, what feel like contests, contests where the supremacy of their God and ours is put on display in a setting where it would be easy to call it into question. Now today we look at Daniel chapter 2, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, and it's either just before or just after their graduation ceremony from Babylon High. These four young Hebrew captives are now 17, maybe 18 years old, um, and here in chapter 2 we find two more great contests underway. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Just a little side note, you notice there, that the language of the book of Daniel shifts from Hebrew to Aramaic in verse 4, another ancient language. It continues in that language all the way through the beginning of chapter 8. 
And it's a broader language for a broader people. It's like God wants more people, more nations to hear of his greatness. And so it lives in that language for about six chapters or so. But King Nebuchadnezzar here is terribly upset by a dream that he had. And he simply must know what it means. And you can understand his urgency if you realize that this is how they believed that God spoke to people. How the future would be revealed to them through these kinds of dreams. And it explains why King Nebuchadnezzar was so intent on learning the meaning. He called in all of his advisors, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans, another group of those sort of people. All of them. And he is serious about finding out the meaning, the real meaning of this dream. Look at verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. I, I told you he was serious, right? But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So the king asks a really big asks, ask here of these advisors, right? Don't just interpret the dream. Tell me its contents first, and then interpret it for me. You get the feeling the king did not trust his advisors very much at this point in time. Um, he must have had a sense that this dream was a dark foreboding for his reign, right? Um, and could it be that the trouble that the dream foretold could come at the hands of even these advisors? A kind of coup, perhaps? It's interesting, the next two of three Babylonian kings would all be assassinated, so that fear is not far-fetched. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, does that sound familiar, that saying, those of you, some of you who our New Testament readers, a God whose dwelling is not with flesh, is with flesh. Look at John 14. The word, this is how Jesus is introduced to us in the New Testament. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, there is a God who reveals the greatest of mysteries himself and one day he is going to dwell with his people. He is a revealer of mysteries, Daniel tells us in chapter 2. Look at verse 12. Now, Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. 
Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the, king of captains, of the captain of the king's guard, rather, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So the, the king, it appears, has a bit of a temper. Um, and Daniel, again, a mere teenager in all likelihood at this point, has remarkable wisdom in the way he approaches this captain and remarkable confidence in his God. He'll stake his life on God's ability to make the dream known. And so the contest is taking shape, right? Can Daniel's God do what theirs cannot? Reveal and interpret the king's dream. Look verse 17. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven regarding this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel, again, is exemplary here. He's a, he's a young senior at Babylon High. And the first thing he does in the face of this predicament is go and grab three friends and pray. So, high schoolers, learn this lesson now. When you're in a predicament, first thing, grab three friends, pray, okay? Grab three friends and pray. Um, do you do that? Is, is that your first impulse? Do you even have three praying friends? You're going to need them, and you're going to need this impulse. Daniel grabs his friends, and they pray for mercy. And as we're about to see, God hears and grants their request. So, so don't miss this, all right? Our God loves to answer a prayer for mercy. Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So our God hears and answers prayer. Yet Professor Ian um, Duggett says, he gives us his challenge. He says, you know, Daniel did not immediately rush off to Nebuchadnezzar with the answer. Even with his life in the balance, Daniel took the time to give thanks to God for the answer he had received. He says, this is where we so often fall short, isn't it? We may pray passionately for deliverance from our trials, but when that deliverance comes, we fail to return our thanks to God. And like nine out of the ten lepers healed by Jesus in Luke 17, we go on our way rejoicing that our problems are solved. Eager to get on with life, we forget the one from whom our healing comes. Not so Daniel. He takes the time to praise God for the awesome deliverance he has received before he brings the answer to the king. And in his praise that we just heard, he praises God for a number of things, but the two main things he brackets his prayer with in verse 20 and again in verse 23. Thanks be to God for having and giving wisdom and might. 
Wisdom and might belong to God. The content of the vision and its enactment, as we're about to see, the destiny of nations is what this is about, is both known and determined by God's wisdom and God's might. Look at verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. So the Nariach brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now the captain of the guard here is a little undeservingly boastful, it seems, when he says, I found a guy. Because really it's more like Daniel found him, right? In verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. So essentially, Daniel is telling the king, Your guys and their gods, uh, they kind of inhale, right? Um, You get the idea. They are worthless to reveal this mystery. Worthless. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. So four times in this chapter, um, God is referred to, Yahweh is referred to as the God of heaven heaven it's it's, the idea is the god over the heavens you could say over the sun and moon and stars that the babylonians worshiped it speaks of his supremacy there's no god like him and this god of heaven the heavens reveals mysteries Uh, one one scholar counts over 30 references just in this chapter to god's ability to know and reveal wisdom and mysteries 30 references If you want to put it in theological jargon, God knows stuff, okay? (laughs) Stuff that no one else knows or can know. Things like the future of nations, as we'll see. Verse 30, Daniel says, As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So you remember my suggested alternative title for the book from last week? The book of Daniel's God, right? I think Daniel would have been all about that. You see his humility here. He gives the glory to God. It's the God of heaven who reveals mysteries that are unknowable to any man on earth, even mysteries about the future. So sorting out life, making decisions about your future without consulting God in prayer is is abject folly, right? as is seeking that wisdom about the future from any other source than God. Out close to my house, um, a number of years ago, a house became vacant and a big sign went up and some renovations started. The sign said, in essence, um, coming soon, fortune teller. And uh, this has been, I wanna say three to five years ago, the sign went up and now the sign's gone. The house is not finished and there ain't no fortune teller. Now admittedly, Part of my regular prayer rhythm when I went past was to pray that that would never happen. So I stacked the deck maybe a little bit, but 
hey, to look for wisdom for the future anywhere but from God is folly. You know, don't give me your money. And in verse 31 through 35, you can read it in detail later. I'll give you a summary. Um, By God's mercy, Daniel in detail describes the king's dream. And it involves a statue with five distinct metals used in its construction. Here's an artist's rendering of it. Uh, There was a gold head, silver chest and arms, bronze belly and thighs, iron legs, and iron and clay feet and toes. That's the essence of the dream, the statue part of the dream. And Daniel discerns all that detail by God's merciful answer to his prayers. What an encouragement to pray to our God. And then in the next handful of verses, 36 to 45, Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. Again, by virtue of God's merciful answer to his prayers. And Daniel says the dream is about successive empires that will follow King Nebuchadnezzar. And one way to interpret those empires is shown on this slide. It's a little clearer here. So the first empire we know from Daniel's interpretation is Babylon the head of gold. Many scholars think that the second empire, the the silver, is Media and Persia. The third empire, the bronze, would have been Greece, and ancient Rome would have been the, the iron, and then some people say future Rome is the feet of clay and iron mixed. Um, Now, an alternative interpretation because the Bible doesn't tell us what these empires are. These are historians looking back and trying to piece it together. Some would have it in not with Rome but with Greece. So there's differing ideas about what each one of these nations read. And in light of that, Professor Tremper Longwin helps us. He says, in the light of this interpretive confusion, we must entertain seriously the idea that the vision of Daniel 2 does not intend to be precise as it writes its history before it occurs. The vision intends to communicate something more general, but also more grand. God is sovereign. He is in control despite present conditions. So even though the identity of these successive kingdoms isn't revealed to us in Scripture, there are several observations in Scripture we can make. First of all, the kingdoms of men that this represents are temporary. As one writer put it, there is always an after this with the kingdoms of men. Secondly, these kingdoms are given by God. Listen to what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37. He says, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. One writer put it this way. It's like he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar, the only reason you're on that throne is because the God of heaven has placed you there. And we'd also observe that, as you notice, the metal gets, it declines in quality. It goes from gold to silver to bronze to iron to mixed iron and and clay. Um, Likely a reference to their decline in morality over the coming empires that would follow um, Babylon. But the focus of the dream and its interpretation is not on the identity of these empires. It's on what comes next, okay? There's a rock at the base of the statue. Down there, you you see it depicted in this drawing. And in his dream, he talks about a rock. In verse 34, it says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. 
And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. It became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. So again, Professor Longman helps us. He says it does not really matter which kingdoms are represented by these metals. They represent successive world powers that dominate the people of God beginning with Babylon. But the main message of the dream comes with the next episode after the description of the statue. It's about the rock. Look at verse 44 with me in the interpretation. It says, in the days of those kings, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. So the main point of the dream is not about the identity of the succession of human kingdoms, but the inevitable, supreme, crushing arrival of the kingdom of Christ portrayed in the rock. Professor Dale Davis gives us this summary of what that rock kingdom is, how it's described in this passage. He does a good job. The description of the stone kingdom is brief, he says, but it is everything the kingdoms of this age are not. It is first indestructible, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's second, final. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Verse 44. Third, it's overwhelming. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And fourth, it's supernatural. It's from a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand. To which we could add other descriptors like all-encompassing would be what this kingdom is. Verse 35 says, The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole You know, it's interesting. Jesus himself quotes part of this same passage in Luke chapter 20 when he looks directly at some folks and says, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, Jesus is coming to bring the fullness of his reign at his return. A reign when all evil will be destroyed and suffering and sorrow will cease. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Christ is bringing his kingdom to this earth in its fullness, on that day, our hopes will all be fulfilled. So the contest results from Daniel chapter two, the contest of the dream and the contest of the nations, the empires, are in, right? The results are in. And the passage closes with a medal ceremony. Look look at verses 46 to 49. King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel 
and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, 18-year-old, over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court, right? So the contest results are in. This is how they read. The king bows before the captive. And he declares Daniel's God to be greater than the gods of Babylon. He declares Daniel's God to be Lord of kings, greater than kings, greater than him. And he exalts the slave and captive above all the wise men in his kingdom. How encouraging would this have been to those other captives? How encouraging ought this be to those of us who follow Christ in a time of suffering and hardship. Be encouraged by these words from Professor Stephen Miller. He says, there is a God in heaven, and this God may be called upon to supply sustenance and wisdom far beyond what's available from human resources. Although circumstances sometimes may look impossible from an earthly standpoint, there is a God in heaven who can do all things. He can solve seemingly insoluble problems, supply needs, and provide strength for impossible tasks. He is a God who is there and is able. I ran across a a story in history that I I found fascinating. Um, Dale Davis tells this. He says that there was a Roman and Christian-hating emperor named Julian who lived in the 300s or so A.D., And he was mortally wounded in a war with the Persians. And while Julian's expedition was in progress, one of Julian's followers mockingly asked a Christian in Antioch what the carpenter's son, Jesus, was doing. And the Christian replied, The maker of the world, whom you call the carpenter's son, is employed in making a coffin for the emperor. And within days, news came to Antioch of Julian's death. And he continues and says, that is where Daniel 2 leaves us. Jesus has a coffin for every empire and emperor. The only true security is in the kingdom of the carpenter's son. Nebuchadnezzar did not forget his dream. And you must not forget it either. Don't forget what the God of heaven reveals to you through this dream. For this is a dream that will come true. In the greatest of contests, one of which is yet future, the kingdom of Christ will prevail. And then all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of thing shall be well. So I thought it would be good for us today to close this time praying together the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And in this prayer, Jesus taught us to pray for this smashing stone to come, the coming of his kingdom. You, know, you remember the words, thy kingdom come. 
And this coming of his kingdom will put an end to all evil and replace all of our sorrows with his joy. And so let me invite you, stand with me. And I put the words to the Lord's Prayer on the screen so that we can all use the same words together. And let's recite it. And as we do, listen for that phrase about the kingdom. There are two of them. Church, let's pray. Our Father.